Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern Time. But since we're global, it could be any time you're part of the world. You have to check. And you can catch all of our back shows, including this one later today, in our archives at visionaries.podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N as in Nancy, dot com. And on Visionaries, we talk with visionaries. And our special guest today is Lois Farfel-Stark, someone who I met under very interesting circumstances a while back. We'll get to that. Lois, how are you this morning? Good morning, John. <laughs> Wonderful to be with you. Hi. Well, the uh, reason Lois is with us is she's written an incredible book, The Telling Image. And I've been anxious to have her on for some time, but we waited till the book was available. So do, if you're online, hop over to Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. You can check it out. And it's magnificently illustrated. We're going to talk about what the book's about, which is this really insightful idea. But I'm a real image person. And just, you know, flipping through it, uh, for example, I come across an image of the vaulting in King's Chapel in England. It's called fan vaulting in late Gothic architecture. And it's just incredible image. And then, to, you know, because I'm an architect, I know how they did that. And it's like that whole ceiling is made out of stone, but it's as tight as a drum. If you go up there, hit it with your knuckles, not too hard. It'll reverberate. So, uh, the images throughout the book are inspirational like that. So let's start, Lois, with uh, what is the telling image all about? Well, I think we're always trying to make sense of the world, and there's so many pieces of information, of things to see in our environment, that it's hard to uh, connect the dots to figure any pattern. And especially in today's world, where it's changing so quickly, uh, we feel even more chaotic. But the telling image in the way that I use that uh, came from my time making documentary films when I would have to land in a foreign country and figure out uh, what the story was and how to tell the story visually. And I realized that beneath all of the things that one sees in the world, architecture, social systems, sacred sites, uh, people milling around, that there is something fundamentally happening, almost hidden uh, beneath the site, and that is shape itself. And then I realized how much shape itself frames our mental map. It's kind of the mindset of an era. And it first struck me when I was filming in Liberia. I was filming a girls' initiation ceremony. They had just come in from the forest where they'd been sequestered for months, kind of learning all the skills of childbirth and picking herbs to heal. And they were welcomed back into the village with a circle dance by all of the women in that community. 
And then I realized that the circle dance was in the hub of a settlement that had been laid out as a circle. And all around that settlement were round thatched huts that they lived in. Mm. And it it made me sort of realize in a pop how much this um, format of something that is eternally repeating gets refigured in everything that they then made and manifest. And it makes sense because they lived in a nature-centered world. So their truths were the eternal round of the seasons, the moon expanding and contracting, the the tides, etc. But what really struck me, um, and once I sort of saw that in their village settlement, saw the fundamental cycling um, nature of sort of this web community, which had concentric circles, but it also had uh, the dynamic repeating round. And then I realized the next day I filmed in the city, and there was a military parade going on, and there you saw soldiers lined shoulder to shoulder, row upon row, and they were like marching in pods, looking like grass paper being turned, just lines and right angles. And they marched in front of generals that had been lined up with all of their medals, sort of announcing their place in the hierarchy. And these generals um, were in a straight line as well. And it, it struck me that we had gone from circles to lines mm. once, once we had become urbanized. And what was that in fundamental way of saying how those in the city then lived? So let's say um, in today's world, even for Liberia, some of the young women, let's say, that might have been, you know, uh, 10-year-olds at the time of that initiation ceremony, probably today they're living in an apartment in Monrovia, the capital, and they're living in a city laid out as a grid, and they're living in rectangular rooms in a rectangular floor in a a sort of an upright rectangular building. And what does that say about the way they then are kind of constricted into that world? Mm. I I remember um, reading a Maasai warrior. uh, He actually wasn't a warrior. He was more like a a shaman. And he had been sent to... um, to the America uh, in a complicated, long story. And so he, he actually knew two cultures and two languages, and he would write letters back to his father, who was illiterate, but uh, the letter could be read to them. And he was saying, in sh- uh, Chicago, the moon hangs right in front of their face, but everyone is too busy to notice it. And remember how we used to long for the new moon. So even in our lifetime, we've gone from being nature-centered to man-centered. We've gone from circles to lines and right angles. And while it's um, in a very gross way, it's it's true from sort of the change um, from a migratory time to a settled time, but it's still happens even within the lifetime of someone that, uh, like this um, young woman in 
Liberia today, even in our lifetime, that would come from a forest life into the city life. Wow. So, Lois, I we're going to have difficulties with this interview because it's just so many ideas are being called up by what you're saying. So I hope we can get to uh, a lot of this material. But one of the things that occurs to me, there's a, a book long out of print called Village Architecture of Africa by Fraser. And it was a standard among uh, architectural historians. And there's a beautiful diagram in it when you describe these Liberian girls. occurred to me where um, in traditional pygmy culture, uh, they would build a village and they'd stay there until they'd hunted out the small animals and then move on. And it, most of it was built by women. They would build their huts out of uh, long, thin, vine-like strands and then pack leaves into them. And these were very lightweight, and the the huts would face each other if women were good friends. So the organization of them would indicate the social network. If two women had a falling out, one of them would pick up her hut and turn it around (laughs) so that the entrance would be facing the other way. You know, and if we if we jump ahead to Marsha McLuhan's Global Village, you know, it's like unfriending somebody on Facebook. <laughs> so, um, uh, but you began describing uh, the how these insights came to you and describing your documentary work. So tell us more about that. For whom were you working? What were these documentaries and what part of your life was that? Uh, In the late 60s and early 70s, I was uh, fortunate to be in a unit that did overseas hour specials. Uh, And at that time, they were done, um, uh, well, I covered uh, Abu Dhabi when, when it was catapulting from a Bedouin society into the 20th century. And the Trucial Omen Scouts, which were a British officered force in the Barami Oasis, because the British had announced that they would withdraw from the Persian Gulf in 72, but at that time they hadn't left uh, yet. Liberia, which was having a a social split between what they called African uh, Americo-Liberians, who were actually descendants of slaves from the American South. It's a most unusual history. But third-generation American slaves were sent back to Africa by well-intended Easterners before the Civil uh, War. And they then, um, those who were returned, set up the only culture they knew, which was the pre-Civil War South. So they set themselves up as preachers, politicians, plantation owners, and they more or less um, enslaved the local population. So Mm. it's still black against black. Uh, Not our civil rights movement was going on at the same time. And we filmed that kind of highlighting what to an American audience was starkly prejudicial, and yet when you see it in another country, you can understand perhaps in a reflected way the roots of your own prejudice. And we also filmed in that same era Northern Ireland, which in that period Christians were fighting against Christians. And again, it was hard for anyone who had a certain 
prejudicial uh, outlook in the 1960s um, when when some of the new legislation was still being fought out in Congress. And in when you saw it in Northern Ireland, it was a little less visible but no less um, delineated to anyone who lives there. You could tell by your name, by the school you went to, by your address, by your job, whether you were a Christian or Protestant. And then... We, you could film uh, like a, a welfare mother um, who, uh, she, in this case, she was Protestant, and her only sort of um, self-imagined source of security was that she considered herself superior to the Catholics. And when I asked her why, uh, she would sort of look right and left as as the cameras were rolling, but as if someone were listening. Yeesh. And and she would say, because the coal man told me when he delivered coal, he delivered it to their bathtubs. Well, this was just one of those mythologies, you know, that, that uh, totally made up. But in these convoluted ways that we lock ourselves into our smaller and smaller worlds and we create these bridge walls that sort of uh, insulate us without really understanding uh, the other in whatever way that may be. And one of the uh, notions of just how far that kind of thinking has come to the notion of what the other is when I visited with a um, a shaman from uh, the uh, Burkina Faso, and he was saying in the Dagora tribe of Africa that they the language even of early times was uh, very bound to the community, and there was actually no exact word for you, a word as simple as the difference between you and me didn't even exist. But the translation of their word for you, the closest translation meant that you are my other self. Hmm. So if you imagine living in a world where the other is an automatic part of you, then you can make differences within it. You can turn that hut around, you know, if you're having a huff with another person. But you're still bound in these early smaller bands and tribes and societies, you're still bound in survival for an interdependency. And that comes in the architecture, it comes in the language, it comes in the social system. I even read that in some of the Sioux tribes that what we call chief, um, and we even uh, as a country signed documents with... um, the chief, but that in in the understanding within the tribe, we were signing the contract with the chief that was the military leader. But in fact, there could have been seven different chiefs. Hmm. So one one might have made uh, made peace between um, people with disagreements within the tribe, and one might have been, let's say, chief of. Um, of procuring food. So it would take each person's natural talent 
and make them the head of that particular function for the society. But in our society, where leadership is so highly hierarchical, we didn't even realize that there could be more than one chief. Interesting. So, Lois, um, before we get back to your book, a little bit more about your background. I first met you when we were both involved in the early days of setting up the Joseph Campbell Foundation. So tell us uh, how and we were really fortunate. There were some very interesting people in our group. And uh, so tell us how you came to be uh, interested in Joseph Campbell and involved with the foundation. Well, I, I think just as I was saying, how do we make sense of the world? Right. Uh, and, and I came to shapes. But predating that, I noticed that we actually make sense of the world by the stories that we inherit. And these can be deep stories like old myths. They can be um, modern stories of um, how we tell the history of a country or such. But they're all stories that we invent. Um, and among those interesting people were you and Mimi. Mm. And you, you gave a presentation on the history of architecture and how buildings themselves express that mindset through time. And Mimi also uh, gave that, and she gave that in addition to archetypal figures, even in tarot cards. So let me interrupt. Uh, Lois is talking about my late wife, Mimi Lobel, who um, I'll be mentioning eventually a, ma- a massive book of hers I'm going to bring out in the next few months. So sorry, but uh, go ahead. No, always happy, happy to salute Mimi because... She understood a certain Gaia principle that is now uh, surfacing in society, but she was prescient and doing it so far ahead of her time that it took decades for the world to catch up with seeing the same source of history that she saw. But the, the particular myths that enchanted me that I was trying to figure out was the difference between how heroes solved problems and how heroines solved problems. Hmm. And um, among that dab, uh, diverse kind of thinking was the story uh, that we've inherited um, as a culture, which is the hero story of slay the dragon, pull the sword out of the rock, unlock the puzzle with the help of a mentor, Those are linear tasks solved by strength, pull the sword out of the rock, and kind of um, lean on an old boy network of who, what mentor is going to tell you the secret to unlock the puzzle, and they'll pick who they're going to tell, the the elder. Uh, But there's a notion then that the world's problems are solved by being... uh, clever and uh, in an egoistic way, and also using strength, but forgetting that if you slay the, cut off the head of the dragon, the dragon's going to grow four more heads, almost like a terrorist organization. You can kill the leader, but the idea then continues to proliferate. 
But the other way to solve problems that's talked about in the heroine myths, uh, particularly in the uh, story of Psyche, among the tasks that are assigned to her by Aphrodite, who is her future mother-in-law, and there are tasks that are meant to be impossible because Aphrodite actually didn't want uh, Psyche to marry her son. So the tasks are, are to dip into the river of life, journey to the underworld, sort seeds by sundown. So to dip into the river of life, uh, nature will always be stronger than any individual. Hmm. So um, Psyche's task was to fill the cup from the river of life and return it to Psyche. Well, she was sitting on the riverbanks crying because uh, she knew she would drown if she leaned over. And then the eagle came, took Psyche's cup, flew over the river, filled the cup, and returned it to Psyche. So she was able to complete the task by a partnership with nature hmm. in the abstract form. So in a hero tale, that same task may have been solved by damming the river, you know, call in the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, let's let's uh, conquer nature, let's, you know, cut off the water, let's make a tributary, let's change the system. And the other um, task was to sort seeds by sundown. And so, again, hard as she tried, it was afternoon and she hadn't gotten very far, and an army of ants come, and zip-zap, they get the job done. So with cooperation, with sewing bees, with community, you can accomplish something in a shorter span of time with everyone's participation that an individual cannot do. So the hero stories tended to be individualistic uh, tasks, and the heroine stories, again, were about an individual, but it was about an individual in community. And when it was about solely about the person, it was also about the person understanding the shadow side, the underbelly. Mm. Um, they were sometimes told by going into the underground, uh, which is really, you know, often the land of the dead. And you would have to have someone appointed uh, above ground to sort of look after you and, and know you were on this journey. But it was a much more complex psychological journey where you could see the wholeness of yourself, not just who you wanted to be, but all those mixtures of um, things that are our impulses. Interesting. Well, to see how those fit in your larger scheme of things, uh, I see you have uh, four major patterns <clears throat> in the telling image. Tell us what those patterns are and what each of them mean. I begin with the web, which, as we've discussed some uh, somewhat, is nature-centered because early migratory humans lived embedded in nature, and then they repeated that cycle and circle that we spoke of in round-thatched huts, igloos, Stonehenge, kivas, medicine wheels, labyrinths, um, all of them, whether they were shelters, sacred sites, or even social systems, 
tended to have the kind of woven cycling aspects of a web. Even their uh, economics, you could say, were barter systems, and their uh, social systems were councils of men and women. But once farming came in, there was no need to be migratory. So when you were in one place for four seasons, everything flipped. the orders of things, um, there were more people, populations exploded, and you had to invent another kind of order to keep some kind of efficiency. And that order I call the ladder, <coughs> L-A-D-D-E-R, hmm. and it was linear thinking, measurement-based, and hierarchically ordered. So in this um, ladder form, you think about the rungs on a ladder, and we use that for social systems, for political tiers. Authority is at the top. And if you cut off the top of a ladder, um, the ladder may topple. But in the progress of how we developed from the time that we had all these massive populations in one spot, even within this L-A-D-D-E-R, thinking of linear thinking, measurement-based, hierarchically organized, the shape itself tended um, to evolve slightly. So you go from the early circle to the square, like the early villages were laid out as squares with gates at, um, and at the walls of these of this square. When the gates were at north, south, east, and west, And before that, you knew those four directions from the circle of the medicine wheel. And the medicine wheel north was aligned to the north star. But in the square of the early villages, the gates of north, south, east, west were aligned to uh, trading partners and political allies. So it was man-centered, no longer nature-centered. And then as the populations continued to increase, it went to the pyramids. So pyramids are not only in um, Egypt, the ones we're familiar with, and they point to the sun god. So there's a way that they're saying that um, God is above. Before that, everything divine was within the earth and within the self, and rocks could talk to you, and you could hear the birds giving you a message, but now you needed a priest or a king to tell you what God was saying. You were cut off, and there was someone else who had to give you instructions. And then that pyramid shape appeared um, in South America, and in South America, some of the pyramids had rounded sides, but they still pointed up. And in Southeast Asia, And in India, they had decorated sides, but they were the same form and dedicated to different gods. Uh, In Asia, they were multiple pyramids on the temple grounds, but they still pointed up. And in many ways, our churches and and chapels also imitate that very shape. And we, Mm. we add steeples and spires, and we're tending to give exactly the same message, up, up, and away. And then we still do that in our um, skyscrapers, and we put steeples almost sometimes on top of skyscrapers because higher seems to be better. 
Uh, it has its practical aspects of more people living in a central spot if you go up, but it also is telling us that now the people who live on the top, whether they're CEOs and not necessarily tribal chiefs, they're the chiefs of their own corporate tribes, let's say. And uh, and then the, as we go between the square and the pyramid, the next shape that seems to be about numbers is um, actually the grid. And it's the grid, like a mathematical grid, that we live today a lot by quantities, not qualities. Mm. So the early web was really about uh, meaning and qualities. And uh, then when we go into the, the grid form where things are charted and streets are laid out as a grid, and it's all about counting and metrics. And so we go from uh, meaning to metrics, from qualities to quantities. And then I kind of think we have reached um, the uh, maximum, let's say, of that kind of thinking. And if you imagine a web and ladder actually combining, you have a helix. Mm. And a helix, even if you imagine the double helix, it's like a twisted ladder. So you still have that old ladder imprint in your mind, but you're seeing it now um, as, let's say, the, the four letters of DNA and all of its wild, multiple, almost infinite combinations. And so you have both the circular uh, in part from the, the web that went as a closed circle in web time, but now as a spiral, it's an open circle where it continues to evolve. And then if you can imagine this world of DNA, um, it's telling us in science, because our time is mostly uh, authorized by science, but DNA is telling us the story of life death, rebirth, because um, our children and grandchildren, you know, will carry some of your uh, genetic material. You just still don't know what it'll look like. Hmm. So it's both pattern and the unpredictable. But in the fundamental story of life, death, rebirth, now told by DNA, it's actually the same story that early man told in the snake, the goddess, the praying mantis, all of their multiple stories that they told of life, death, rebirth, seeing the same sort of uh, cycles in nature evolve and adapt and, and repeat. Um, but it's just the modern version of it. And then if you take that helix and go back again and imagine that twisted ladder with all of its crossbars and imagine it bursting open, then you actually have the network of today with all of its links and nodes. And our whole uh, modern life is kind of based on that network. So we lay out... Um, airport hubs as links and nodes. Of course, we have the Internet as links and nodes, and that's how we socialize, we shop, we bank, 
we uh, find information all according to that road map. And if you think about the mind of even uh, people born in the 1900s, we more or less read in linear lines, and we thought in linear lines. But if you imagine those born after the Internet, they actually think by hyperlinks. You know, uh, not so much that A goes to B and then the line goes back and goes straight across, but they think by all of the wild associations of what could be related to that one point. So you actually, even for word definitions in a dictionary, we would read them in lines and would read them by the major uh, definition first and then uh, the sub-definitions and associations But if you look at definitions today that you can find on the web, some of them are actually like word clouds where you see all of the associations of that word in either larger um, font related to the word or closer in its concentric circles, closer to the word. So in a visual pattern, you understand all of the many relationships that that word might have. And then you think of that very layout, um, sort of data visualization, and it can come even in, um, in hyperlinks like bacteria. And there are many pictures today of bacteria colonizing, and it actually colonizing, colonizes in network formations. But the kinds of formations are wildly varied because nature has its own imagination and it will respond to stress, even at the bacteria level, by forming partnerships. And bacteria are billions of years old, so we we have a lot to learn about what this pattern can teach us about partnerships and networking. But I also suggest that the network may not be the last um, kind of form and shape that is influencing today. So before we go on, let's let's just pause. Uh, You're listening to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. And our guest today is Lois Farfel-Stark. And she's the author of The Telling Image, which is what we're hearing about right now, available right now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, wherever else you get your books with just a click. And so, Lois, you're telling us what types of patterns we're uh, uh, possibly going to see in the future. Right. And what I see emerging today, and it, it may be something that sticks, it may be something that leads us to the next quickly, but I see it as uh, what most people would identify as a donut shape. The formal name is torus, T-O-R-U-S. And that spinning shape, that round ring, that cylinder that sort of forms like an O shape, it's the shape of apple. The new building, the headquarters that's mm. made of uh, glass in uh, California It's also a magnetic field, right? Exactly. But you can imagine that Steve Jobs thought a lot about shape. And this is the shape that he chose. 
and the to, um, this very shape is popping up not only in the Apple headquarters, but in China, that very shape um, is an upright ring. So while it's on the ground in California, it's actually standing up. That if you can picture a donut kind of on its base with the O in the air, that's the shape of some hotels in China. So you can imagine how it holds paradox, where the inside rooms have outside views, and sometimes the buildings are slightly underwater and above water. But when you step back, it forms an elegant whole but when you're inside, the view continuously changes. So living in these new shapes reshapes our thinking. The, the uh, eavesdropping building, sort of the CIA building in London, is also built in this round ring shape. It's flat, but the reason that they say they built it in that shape is because the intelligence that they got used to process in silos within their system. And what they wanted was for everyone to have access to new information so that they could process it together. And what this shape does is help us see things from all sides, inside and outside, and in dynamic motion. So just as you said, the shape is in physics as well, because the magnetic field around our bodies is actually this donut shape. Mm. If you can picture it like coming out from your heart and going around your body and then coming back into your heart on both sides and front and back, we are um, the center of this dynamic shape of the donut. And the magnetic field around Earth itself is also that. So if you can imagine it coming from some inner molten place, going out around the crust of the Earth and coming back in. And then if you can imagine yourself and inside a donut and coming out like a part of a force field coming out around the donut, you would see an expanding universe. And all of your evidence would prove that. But then if you continued uh, the force field back down under the donut, you would also see a contracting universe. And Mm. all the evidence would be there for that. So in a way, it holds the paradox where you can be both sides of something at once if you step back and see the pattern. And so much in our time is locked in yes, no, right, wrong, uh, right, left. But even in these buildings there, there are no flat walls. There are no right, lefts. And it helps us start to learn and think in these dynamic flowing ways where we can incorporate more information, new information. And instead of being lost in chaos... We still see them as independent little tidbits of whether it's information or objects or even um, personal uh, individuals coalescing, but you see them in held in a larger pattern. 
so that you can both be the particular, but you can also be in participation of the whole. Mm. So, interesting. Uh, As we go through your book, what are some more ways in which the lessons of these, particularly these earlier historical periods, have to offer to us today? Well, um, we tend to think that the old ways were wrong, maybe uh, wrong scientifically or uh, wrong in that uh, for our way of living, they uh, seem anachronistic or silly. But actually, each of them had wisdom for their time, and each of those wisdoms is still alive in our time. If you go into a church, uh, these large cathedrals, they actually have the web still alive. If Often uh, the round glass windows are just above the altar, and you see sometimes they're divided into at least 12 different segments. And often they can have a labyrinth on the floor mm. Uh, And those are still ways of seeing and accessing spiritual wisdom. So it's, and it doesn't, the latter period doesn't mean um, that the need for that kind of efficiency and order and um, measured way, it, it, we actually find it extremely valuable. We're even doing it faster and faster now with AI. And it's uh, coming to us so readily that we actually have to invent new ways to be sure that our particular human abilities and values uh, stay in pace with that AI. So that it doesn't go away. Uh, it just evolves into something that is more useful as our times and technology uh, continue to speed along. But I think the most valuable thing that is emerging today, which is something that would not be a surprise to the early web time, is that it's holistic. When we see things from space and we see our tiny blue marble, we see its beauty and we see its fragility But most of all, we see its wholeness, Hmm. and we see the wildness of the cosmos, but we also see how much everything impacts everything else. And I think the one expression that you can use even in the spider web pattern is that a vibration anywhere is felt everywhere. And now we know that in political terms, in economic terms, we know it as viruses. But just to know it at the spiritual level, at the level of beauty, at the level of knowing that we are a part of everything else in the universe and what happens to us can influence other things (laughs) out there and other things out there can influence us. And those things um, would be very um, 
understood by even early man, the Bushman, who it said could listen to stars and understand their clicking language. So how they did it, I would love to have to know, but I can I like to imagine that it was absolutely true for them. Interesting. Um, now I'm just looking. Uh, you have a page that has a beautiful green illustrations of a fern and then of broccoli florets, and I'm not sure the broccoli florets if that's real florets or a fractal. Uh, the fern looks real, but you can also make a very convincing fern mathematically. So it's interesting how some of our science and mathematics today bring us back to these earlier principles. So if we sort of understand how, you know, what the rules are, the formula is in a fractal that makes it look like, say, broccoli florets, uh, we can guess that nature's probably using the same rules and then start getting insights. So I'm a big fan of imagery in mathematics and science because whole worlds can be encoded in an image that may not be yet understandable in formulas. Yes. Um, the, the picture can give us um, sometimes what we cannot yet uh, make the mathematical equation for, and uh, then sometimes once we have the mathematical equation, we can see how many times nature has reiterated it. Um, as you were saying that a broccoli floralette looks like the entire head of the broccoli, and the leaf on a fern looks like the whole stem itself, and pictures from space are helping us to see at how many scales upon scales upon scales that's true. So you can have pictures of a river delta with all of its tributaries, and it looks exactly like the veins on a leaf. Mm. And you can have pictures from an electron microscope um, of a West Nile virus and its globular patterns, and it can look a lot like pictures of a lake in Utah taken from space. So it, it is both the imagery that shows us the repeating patterns, but today technology can bring us images that we've never had before. So you can have the Hadron Collider looking for this smallest particle ways of being in the Hadron Collider. And at the same moment in time now that we have that at the subatomic particle level, we also have pictures from the International Space Station, from probes going to Mars. But we, 30% of our brain is in visual functioning. Hmm. It's the largest part of our brain. So it's the first and uh, biggest source of information that we both take in the world and then try to discern the patterns within it. And our technology now is giving us those pictures both from the cosmos 
and at an in, seismic uh, technology is giving us pictures inside the earth as we're looking for minerals, for archaeological sites. And now we have pictures also inside the brain of how um, our neurons are connected. And there's new technology that can take pictures of river systems and forest systems. And so you can actually see what might be, let's say, um, the whole and the part at once. A picture of a LIDAR, L-I-D-A-R, LIDAR photography, can show you with its own colorization, like a radar colors, um, the whole forest, but it can also show you an individual tree and be able to discern the species, the health of that tree. So you create the patterns within the forest that can show you uh, which have been infected by a, a particular pest, which are thriving, and then you'd be able to plan and correct the situation. Some LIDAR photography is taken of river systems. So you not only see the river that's uh, now before your eyes, but you can also see where the river was inside the earth, and you can also guess where the river's going to be. So it's both a way to actually see in one image past, present, and future. So besides the Taurus, uh, do you see other patterns that these new technologies are revealing to us, and how might they affect how we see ourselves? I think that um, the hope is that we will understand how connected everything is. We have lived in a world of numbers, and actually numbers are imaginary, that we consider them the most fundamental real things. And now there are things that we are um, learning are invisible. Um, we use the cell phones, but we don't actually see the wave patterns coming to the cell phone, and there are many things in the electromagnetic field that we don't see. Our vision is limited, our hearing is limited, but our minds are not limited. And now we're beginning to um, make some maps of these systems and understandings of how uh, this invisible world is actually quite full. And when we can have a, a larger understanding of just how much is going on at all times around us and then in all the scales beyond us into the cosmos, I, I think it will be both humbling and exciting. And the notion that we are... Um, that what we do matters, because in chaos theory, it is the smallest thing that have long-term reactions um, and can have those reactions. It's not an absolute that it will, but it's kind of like patterning and the unpredictable, just like being able to predict your grandchildren's 
looks. Mm. No, you can't. But you do know that somewhere embedded in that will be those fundamental influences. And in that same way, our behaviors here on Earth, you know, whether or not we can even sustain this Earth, whether we'll have to go elsewhere, all of those are about what we do at the interdependent, cooperative levels, and also at the levels that that we're just beginning to understand of how much um, everything is dependent on everything else. Interesting. So uh, we have a few minutes left. My guest has been Lois Farfel-Stark talking about her new book, The Telling Image. Lois, well, I, I'm sure this book took you many years. They usually do. What are you uh, hoping to do next? Well, um, I have uh, several ideas cooking. Uh, one of them is about desks, D-E-S-K-S, as the home of the mind, mm. sort of a, a, a given place where we sit to figure out what we're thinking. And then I was... Um, Before you go on... Uh, if maybe you can find an old used copy of it, there's a, a photographer no longer with us named John Narr, N A A R, and he did a book called "Living in One Room," and in it you'll find a portrait of my late wife Mimi's her room uh, at one point, but it was uh, a little more than the desk, but how people organized the room around them as a projection of the way of themselves and the way they did their work. So that sounds like it's going to be really interesting and also uh, can take advantage of a lot of photography. Yes, uh, I think uh, we both have that uh, regard for images and how much they can give us infinity of information and do it all in a snap. So is there another book besides Desks or another project that you're working on? Well, I was also um, going beyond the the image of a given room and desk. I was going to compare Thomas Edison and his roll-top desk where he had hundreds of patents being developed simultaneously and compare how he worked and retrieved information compared to Elon Musk, who also has, in our time, a thousand patents Mm. going, and yet has the iCloud to store his. And then thinking about Benjamin Franklin as a publicist, and um, Mark Zuckerberg as a publicist, both kind of um, communicating the local news of their time, and that then uh, reached larger and larger audiences. And comparing Thomas Jefferson, who wrote uh, the um, preamble to the Constitution on a laptop desk, a little wooden desk uh, that he devised so that he could write in his coach as he went from Virginia to uh, Philadelphia, and compare that to... Uh, Tom Brenner's Lee, who invented the Internet, because both were inventing a participatory society for their time. And then also showing how some of the new workspaces with mobile devices 
are entirely different than the kind of privacy and individual um, rooms that we began with. Interesting. So one more image I have to uh, refer you to. There's a W.C. Fields movie. Not sure which one. It might be the bank, Dick. But he's working as an executive in a bank, and his boss comes in wanting a certain file. And he has a roll-top desk that is utter, a total mess, just uh, stacks and stacks. And when asked for a certain file, he just reaches his fingers down and exactly in what position in the middle of the stack finds it and pulls it out. So I think that'll make a a great image for your book. So listen, Lois, I want to thank you for joining us. This is John LaBelle on PRN.FM, Progressive Radio Network. Find this show on visionaries.podbean.com. Lois, anything you'd like to say to wrap up? Um. One of the reasons I like the uh, donut shape is that it helps us to see things from all sides. Mm. And I think that is something that we could stand to learn more and more how to practice in our fractured society today. Great. Well, thank you. And wrapping up, this is uh, Visionary. See you next week. <laughs> 